pass a day writing and keeping a diary, writing a book, you know, uh, writing all the time. September 24th. If you think about the worst place you've been to on the planet, multiply it by ten. Then think again. Welcome to Los Teques. So you kept you know, a diary of your experiences in the in, in the wing, maximum wing. Of I kept Tekis. a diary. Yeah, every, every day I wrote a diary. Just about every every day. You know. Twenty eighth of November, two thousand and nine. We were in the wing smoking dope, the usual, just getting on with it. There's a wing adjacent to the yard called Number Seven, a bit of a mad place. They're always locked up. There's a small hole from number seven, just enough to get your head and your arm through, and it's used so they can buy stuff out of our shop. Last night there was a lot of shouting and screaming, which went on for uh, half an hour. Everyone in the wing felt silent. One of the seven lads had been caught stealing, and so a gang set upon him with knives, stabbing him to death. In the morning when we went for breakfast, there was a strong smell of disinfectant. This is a story with two beginnings. Both start in an airport. And we're walking through the airport. There's a lot of army presence, you know? A lot of army presence. A lot of drug squad, a lot of everything, you know? This is Paul, and this is where the first part of our story begins. Paul is walking through Simon Bolivar International Airport in Caracas. Carrying a suitcase, wheeling it along, and um, everything seems okay, you know? Uh, Just avoided the army, you know, as you do. So I went straight up to check in, put the suitcase on the way in. I think the, the weight was grand. She gave me my boarding pass, and uh, then I had to go and walk through customs, and uh, then through the actual immigration. As far as I was concerned, the suitcase was on. That was it. Game was over. Had happy days. And then um, they called out. Um, about 10 or 15 names, mine was included. And then all of a sudden the door opened to the left and uh, we were all told to go down the staircase down to where the baggage was. They proceeded to do a search of everyone's uh, suitcase, but they just left me to last. Uh, it, was, um, it was sort of like three little darts fired into the suitcase. I could see it from where I was standing and all this little white powder was coming out on these darts, you know? And I just said to myself, good night, Vienna. I'm looking at about 10 to 15 years here now. Ah, stop it. Everything's going to be gone. Everything. They gave me the phone. They said I had five minutes to phone whoever. I said, this is your Uncle Paul. Uh, Remember I was going to Spain uh, on my two-week holiday? I said, well, I'm not. I said, I'm in Venezuela, you know, on a, on a three-week holiday, you know. I said, I'm after being caught with uh, six kilos of cocaine in my suitcase. Our 
This story has two beginnings. Both start in airports. The second part involves myself. I was flying from Colombia home to Dublin. I'd been based in South America working as a freelance foreign correspondent for three years. One report I did was about an Irish man locked up in Las Teques jail in Venezuela. That prisoner was Paul, and he wasn't expected to be released for another eight years. Next to Venezuela, where independent observers have said that in the country's prisons, every human right is violated every day, and many cells are controlled by the inmates themselves. Jeff Farrell reports from Caracas, where he has paid a visit to an Irish man in one such jail. Inside the wing, we meet Paul, who is 46, tells me he was on his way through Caracas to Simon Bolivar International Airport last August when customs officers found six kilos of cocaine he had packed into the bottom of a suitcase on his way to Ireland. The flight arrived in Dublin Airport. I step off and join the queue at immigration. A man stands in the line next to me. I hear his voice, and his accent sounds familiar. He clears immigration. I have to wait. When I pass, I run through the airport and catch up with him. Had I not, I wouldn't be telling this story. Unbelievable, you know. Said the eye in the sky is everywhere, you know. This guy's probably following me, you know. <laughs> he looked thinner, with a gaunt face. Half the size of the man I remember two years ago. I think a weight of about nine and a half stone. From, well, I was about 13. 13 stone. Um, when I got caught in 2008, I was about 13 stone. So. It's a lot of weight to lose, you know. I realised Paul was due to serve eight years before he could leave prison. I was wondering how he was out and began to believe he had escaped. It turned out I was right. When we went through the, the, the main gate of the prison, it was just, uh, it was incredible just getting, uh, you know, tasted the freedom even outside the gate. So for the next couple of months, I visited Paul at his house. We talked about Los Techies and life behind bars in Venezuela. He was standing, uh, pointing a pistol at me. It was, um, it was a pistol that the, the, the police used, um, a Glock or a revolver? Or no, it was a revolver, yeah, because he flipped out the, the, the chamber. The chamber you saw the Just bomb. to show me that it was live ammunition that was in it, and then he flips it back up and he points it at me. And... He showed me photos on his laptop that he had taken in the prison from a camera smuggled inside. And then beside him, this guy here, he actually died of AIDS. And uh, it was a terrible and slow place. I helped actually carry him out of the wing. And uh, After he died? After he died, yeah, and just placed him in the alleyway, right, ready for the wheelbarrow, you know. I think there's a lad there, he's just doing a line of coke off the bench there, see him, you know. And there's Oliver, I think he's just rolling a cigarette. Or he might even be um, putting a bit of Perico in the oven pipe to smoke, you know. What's Perico? Perico's cocaine. Paul then takes out a diary, a detailed diary he kept during his time in Las Teques. This excerpt my diary is talking about, this is uh, Thursday morning, day 20. On the way out, I had to 
past the public phones, which are a notorious place to get robbed, stabbed and killed. Would you believe it? The telephone on the wall was covered in blood. Paul gave me his diaries from Lost Techies to take home, and I was shocked as I read his accounts of life inside the Venezuelan jail. 15,000 euro. Win, lose or draw. That's what he said. So they'd, they'd give me the money. If I got caught, they'd give me the, the money. And, but he didn't. And I don't particularly want to see him. Probably end up with a bullet in your head, you know. I was approaching a pub in the local town the road here, you know. There's people that do know them, but I, I haven't a clue. Let's head about, about them the better. It seemed fairly easy, you know. It seemed easy enough at the time, yeah, you know. Go to South America, pick up the... Have a holiday, free holiday, you know. Pick up the package in a pre-packed suitcase and uh, jump on the plane. I thought, be over in two weeks, be home, have the cash, sort out my financial problems. They'd phone me. They had my phone number, you know. And he said, right, I have a date for you. I have the f- tickets, I have money for you. Dublin... Paris, Paris, Venezuela, Air France. Just told me to book into a hotel when I got there. They had my phone number, you know. They'd phone me, find out where I was. I didn't actually know they were staying in the hotel, but they were staying in the same hotel as me, just on another floor. They were preparing the suitcase then, you know. And they they bought the, the suitcase up just the night before. There was one lad, one one Irish guy, and uh, a lad, uh, Venezuelan guy. And um, the suitcase was packed. They left me at the suitcase, took the other one. It was all, there was no smell, there was no nothing like that. It was all concealed. Both sides, you know, they open up, you got one, the top and the bottom. And in the lining was all the cocaine. But um, I think they got too greedy. And they packed the suitcase up too, too much, and then they didn't put it back together properly. When I went down to the airport on the Friday, um, I got onto the Air France queue and queued up, lifted the suitcase up, put it on the scales, no problem, and off it went. And um, I said, it's grand, it's on the plane. I said, that must be it. You know, once it goes down that chute, you know, <laughs> I said, that, that's it, we're, we're, home, we're home and dry. Little did I know, you know. But obviously one of the baggage handles, he pulled up, up the ha- the handle and the handle came out. So it hadn't been secured properly, it hadn't been glued in properly or whatever. And the handle came out of the suitcase. Otherwise, the suitcase was on the plane. So I went through then, I went through the customs. I was last, everyone else was gone. And... Um, there was a big uh, gathering of the army personnel, you know, because they knew damn well what was in it, you know. And um, and uh, then they ripped the lining open and um, they found all the cocaine. All standing around, yeah, just, just waiting for the, the white powder to be produced. And then the old cheer went up. You know, we have the best. Another one bites the dust. Another fly caught in the web. You know, let's fleece him of all his money and his personal belongings and send him 
to hell. Six dead in prison riot and 15 injured. The disturbance occurred during family visiting hours. Authorities say the incident was quickly contained. There is no law here, no law. People visit with their families. They treat us like animals. Then, but we all had to have group photographs. Everyone wanted to have the photograph taken with me because it was the the biggest killer the the month probably. Maybe I think it'd been a while since I caught a trafficker. You know, I couldn't exactly see it happening in Heathrow Airport. You know. And, 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 you know, sort of like a Nigerian drug trafficker getting caught and all the the uh, the police or the army or whatever in Heathrow Airport all standing around going, Ooh! It was like holiday snaps, you know. I'd say I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sat on a few mantelpieces now. So from there it was uh, over to the drug squad HQ in the dockyard, which was, uh, which was a bit of a bizarre place. Um, there was no such thing as a cell. Um, I was just handcuffed and uh, left to sit on a steel staircase. And I was there until until the Tuesday. Just sat on a steel staircase. No bed, no food, water only. Yeah, so that, that was uh, two, nearly five days without food. Yeah. So a very hungry, very hungry uh, court, court appearance, you know. It wasn't really a courtroom, it was just a room. There was no and the judge was uh, the judge was like a supermodel. She was beautiful. Couldn't believe it was the judge actually, you know. I was expecting some hairy old fat guy or something, you know what I mean? But she was a supermodel, she was beautiful. And uh, from there then it was uh, she she told me she said you'll get eight years if you plead guilty, you'll get ten years if you plead not guilty. You know? But she said, if you play your cards right, you can be out on parole within about two years to work in, in Caracas for your, the rest of your, your time, for five years. Reading from the diary from the laptop on the, the 16th of the 6th. Through the interpreter, the judge said, guilty, you're not guilty. I said guilty and I signed a piece of paper. Then the judge came out of the office and said a few words and gave me an eight-year sentence. She showed me a piece of paper with the eight underlined, so I knew exactly how long I was getting. I nodded in agreement. That was it, 20 minutes in total. The drive over from Makuta took about three hours. The area was surrounded by mountains. The visibility from the truck wasn't great. So we didn't see much till we parked at the entrance. Big white gates opened. The first thing that strikes you is the faces at the bars. Hundreds of heads peeking out to get a glimpse of the new arrivals. Welcome to Los Teques. This is the sound of gunfire inside Los Teques jail. This is a TV report in Venezuela. 
about two rival factions who fought it out in the jail. A prison chief explains how to stop further violence. We are moving prisoners to other jails to cut down on the number of murders. In another news report, a woman stands outside the jail, crying, asking that the inmates hand over the bodies of those killed inside. They have to look at their hearts and bring them over to us. It's not dogs what they have killed. They are human beings. Please hunt over the bodies. That's all we ask. Couldn't see out. You could just see out the back of the lorry. And you were handcuffed with there two soldiers down, armed guards, you know. The big gates opened, we went in, there was loads of people hanging out to the bars. Loads of arms and heads hanging out the bars looking at the new prisoner coming in, you know. And then the army outside the prison, the, the army, there was a, an army, like fortress, all the way around the prison, you know. Big mad walls, and there was four towers with machine guns, so the chance of escape was, was just nil. That was it, I was uh, strip-searched. The first night wasn't too bad, I slept underneath the TV in the pantry. Huge, huge television. And the people just used to watch DVDs, pirate DVDs all, all day. But um, I slept there underneath the thing on a piece of cardboard and I had a towel as a blanket, you know? And then after that, um, I was... I was given a, a lovely spot in the toilet. I'm on my seventh day today. We're sleeping in the toilets. It takes forever to get to sleep, usually 11pm, which isn't too bad. But if it's visiting day, the next day you're up at 4.30. It's about as degrading as it gets with the 135 inmates needing the jacks at night and where they're sleeping, they're stepping over you on top of you. The things that wake you are the noises of them clearing their nostrils, blowing the cocaine out of their noses. Terrible to smell the people coming in to piss at night. You know, the piss would be all... You'd end up in the, in the morning, the, the bit of cardboard you had for underneath you, your um, cushionetta would be soaking in piss. When I went to Los Tequis, the most unusual thing I saw is that the prison guards stand outside the walls. But inside, it's the prisoners who call the shots. There are no official guards. It's prisoners, fully armed, who call themselves bosses and run the wings. It's a crazy system. You have to see it to believe it. Uh, once, once the door of the, the, the wing was closed, the, the, the boss could literally do anything he wanted and that was, that was life and death as well, you know. The boss brought you into one of the cells, so you were taken into the wing, right down the back by the toilets. The boss, who was standing, pointed a pistol at me. He flipped out the, the chamber, the chamber you saw the just bullet. to show me that it was live ammunition that was in it, and then he flips it back up and he points it at me, and then... He gave me all the 
instructions of what I had to do and what not to do, all the do's and all the do nots. I had to pay, you had to pay an entry fee to get into the wing. Yeah. And the entry fee was 200 euro because uh, it was protection. They protect you. They protect you from any, any of the prisoners outside once you're in that wing and they keep you alive. Because outside, once you went outside the wing, they couldn't protect you. I got moved out of the toilet when um, when I paid me entrance fee into the wing. When the, the Western Union came, the guy actually uh, gave me a spot out in uh, the cell number two. And uh, it was actually, it was more uncomfortable than the toilet, if you can imagine that. Because there was just so many people. Murderers, uh, paedophiles, rapists, child molesters. And they, they walked around... Uh, all day, every day, with guns and knives. And that's what you paid your protection. That's what the rent was for as well. It was to protect you from other prisoners. So they all have guns, you know. If you've got enough money, you can buy a gun, you know. Late October 2009, when the sun shines, which is most of the time, it's nice to get out into the yard but there's just not a lot of room to manoeuvre and there's always something going on. The yard's a hive of activity. For this particular guy, on, it was on the Saturday, and his wife his wife never came in on the, the Wednesday for the visit because she wasn't well. But in his drug state mind, he thought that she was with another guy, you know, or with someone else. On the visit day... I was I was walking over to the big rancho and visits happen in there as well, you know, just normal visits without the conjugal rights, you know. And uh, you can go and sit there and meet other uh, foreign prisoners from other wings and uh, maybe have a game of cards. or. So on the way over to the big rancho, um, you have to wait for one gate to open. So we're, we're stood there waiting and uh, this guy walks up to his wife Boom, 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 you know, three shots, you know. And the screams and the shouting and the... Oh, stop. And all the police running in then to get your man and drag him off. Early December 2009, I'm sat opposite the visits in the Rancho Grande, writing this diary. The problem is... You're not allowed to look at female visitors, very rude, and comes with a harsh punishment, so I've got used to burying my head in this copybook and writing. The weekly visits were Wednesday, Saturday and Sunday. Loud music played incessantly. Reggaeton, boom, 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 played really loud. On the conjugal visit, you'd have to, you'd have to book early to get a boogie. A, bo- a boogie was, uh, this. Uh, there was 20 beds, there was 20 boogies made up for every visit, which was just really a bed surrounded by curtains, you know, and they called it a boogie, you know, and they went into the boogie for the jiggy-wiggy. You, you got, like, an hour, an hour in a boogie at a time, you know, and so you could have up to, like, five couples going into the one boogie, but everyone who had a visit, uh, a lady visit, but you couldn't hear a thing because the music was so loud. 
the music was deafening, deafening on the on a visit day. March 2009. So today the prisoners in their infinite wisdom decided to kidnap the visitors. The word is this could go on for up to 14 days. Everyone was kidnapped. It didn't matter who you were or how old you were. It was like a disco that you go to uh, outside, you know. Very dark, you know. But loads of... Uh, uh, boyos walking around with guns, you know. So everyone had a partner, you know. All the, all the Venezuelan guys had, had a visit. So in this disco, there was an altercation between two of the prisoners' wives. And so one of these prisoners was asked to leave the disco. And uh, he just happened to be the boss of one of the other wings. So this was... This was seen as uh, totally disrespectful, highly disrespect, you know. We heard about it in the morning, Sunday morning, there'd been a bit of a altercation in the disco. So, and they said there might be, there might be some sort of uh, trouble, but not during the visit, you know. After the visit goes, there might be a bit of, bit of gunfire, you know. But this particular day, the, the, the visit was staying, obviously, until four o'clock in the afternoon on the Sunday. And... Um, the boss of the special wing was invited down to talk to the boss of the number two wing, the guy that he threw out. So he went down thinking it was just to talk and so he didn't take any bodyguards with him or anything like that. And uh, when he sat down beside the, the boss of the two, just outside the number two pavilion, um, he was assassinated by uh, a lone gunman. But... Um, that was it, it just all kicked off then. 16th of March, 2009. There must be about 50 of us stuck behind this court and crammed in like livestock. The people from the special wing were firing the people from the two and vice versa. Then the, the people from the one sided with the people from the two. And then the people from the special... I had Mostrico sided with them, and so a big war ensued. Twenty second of March, two thousand and nine, day eight. Next thing, a call comes out from the lad doing lookout on the front door that several gunmen had run up the stairs. The boys were going up to take position and start shooting at us. We were ordered into the pavilion to take cover. We were about half in and half out when it all kicked off. The noise of the gunfire was deafening. You could feel them buzzing over your head. There was a stampede trying to get through the door. Panic had set in, and it was everyone for himself. Two bullets whizzed over my head and crashed into the frame of the door. The sound of the bullets was amplified because we were down in a hollow. As all the fighting was going on on the roof, I had a massive gun battle on the roof, but um, they were just shooting anything that moved. Someone came out of uh, any doorway. It could be someone who's going to kill you. So anything that moved was shot. Ricochets were flying everywhere, so... 
We had to be wary and keep our old head down. Spent cartridges littered the floors. The gunmen in our wing were screaming and shouting to give themselves a bit of bravado, I suppose. The rest of us just had to take cover and wait for the outcome. This is this is the weird bit. After the gun battle and all had settled down, the army came in to check the numbers as if nothing had really happened. All the women crying, screaming, the kids. You couldn't miss it. And then all the, the injured people, all the crying, all the screaming and all the visits. And these these lads who call themselves men, you know, gangsters and the whole lot, endangering the lives of their their own families, you know. It's crazy. Saw all the people in line in the passageways, lying with the sheets over them. There's uh, 17 killed and I think it was about 37 injured. I think the three were visits. Thirtieth of March, two thousand and nine. They got a new consignment of uh, coke in today, so they're busy in in where we sleep, chopping and mixing and bagging. I took cocaine. I think it was it was about two or three months before I actually started taking cocaine. It was actually at the Christmas, the first Christmas. Nearly every day I bought. Bought a bag in the evening, you know, two euro for a bag, and it, it was it was a bit addictive as well, you know what I mean? Couldn't wait to have your bag in the evening, you know. It was uh, it's a bit of escapism as well, you know, just take your mind off. That's why a lot of people do it. Takes your minds off to the violence. Thirty first of March, two thousand and nine. Well, that must have been the worst breakfast ever. A cup of coffee with no sugar and three rock-hard arepas. The sort of stuff that would make a dog vomit. You can always tell when the food is good in here because the dog is sniffing around you for scraps. The nose of a dog never lies. There was a number of hunger strikes. Uh, the worst one was the, was the eight-day strikes. It was eight days in total, you know. Uh, this it was all about humanitarian rights uh, conditions and the boss told you, you know that was it you can't eat you know if they see you eating then you probably get a bullet but on that particular hunger strike three people died on that hunger strike but on the fourth day I I took a turn and passed out Saturday October the fourteenth two thousand and nine. Last weekend on Friday I was told I'd probably be going home on the following Monday. What actually transpired is that my... A quirk of the Venezuelan legal system is that inmates serving up to eight years and more can get out on parole after just two years, but they have to remain in the country and work. ...ready for my final few days in Los Teques. There was actually one of the bosses from the special wing upstairs was, um, he was going to freedom. And when one of the bosses out of a wing went to freedom, all the other bosses and the guards in the prison would shoot the guns in celebration of this this great achievement, you know. And uh, this particular day, the boss of our wing, uh, he just put the gun out the door, no warning, and he fired off a volley of about nine shots from an automatic. And uh, unfortunately, the gun was right beside me right here. You know, and it was in quick succession as well. Brr, brr, like this, you know, like a machine gun. 
and uh, there was blood and everything coming out of my ear. So obviously he shattered my eardrum. Wednesday, November 24th, 2010, I followed Jack over to the rancho. It wasn't long before my head was on the bench and I was fast asleep. Next thing I know, Jack is waking me. I could see a smile on his face and in broken English he said, you have freedom. I say, what? And he says, you go today. The lawyer on his phone said the judge had signed the papers this morning and I'll be walking out the door this evening. As the army came around to do the head count, I knew it'd be the last time I'd have to say my number. When we went through the the, the main gate of the prison, it was just uh, it was incredible just getting a you know taste of the freedom even outside the gate. So I I would have had to stay there and work for five years, and uh, my solicitor actually got me a job, an electrician's helper. So the job, the job was okay, and the money, the money wasn't great, but it meant you'd have had to live, live and stay in, in Caracas for the next five years, and I just I wouldn't have been able to do it. But um, the next, the very next day when I went to the court to uh, sign on, I was um, handed the chance of a lifetime on the plate because the courthouse was closed. The guy outside, like the, the court usher, he told me to uh, come back on Monday. And then I was able to pay this uh, Colombian drug gang to get me over the border, and that's exactly what happened. But these guys said they were leaving on the Wednesday, so I just didn't appear in court. And obviously then a, a warrant would have went out for my arrest. And the reason why they took was like €400, Euros, because they had to pay bribes along the way as well. To police and Guarda National along the route. Uh, you could get stopped a half a dozen times, or you might not be stopped at all. We were stopped once halfway along by Guarda National, who came onto the bus, asked for my passport. I said I didn't have a passport. Talked to Miguel, you know, and um, Miguel gave him, say, 20 euro, and uh, he was happy enough. And then on the border, we weren't so lucky because there was uh, a drug squad officer and uh, the, the same thing, they, they came on looking for IDs and I didn't have an ID. So Miguel offered uh, this this particular drug squad officer, he offered him €200 Euro just to shut him up. But uh, he actually said, no, that's not enough. And he told us to get off the coach and off we went into uh, the police station on the border. Police station in the border, a nightmare. Because this was so close to just going back to Los Texas, it was unbelievable, you know. It was just like panic, you know. But I had, uh, luckily, I had money on me, which was um, rolled up, and uh, this was 500 euro. And this particular drug squad officer, he was on his own with us in the, the room, and because he saw the, the large wad of notes, as you can imagine, six million, you know. And uh, we were blessed, actually. He could have been one of these honest guys and said, right, you're back to Los Texas, which would have been, you know, loss of... Uh, I'd have done it eight years, solid. He was happy to take a large amount of money. <laughs> 
and because it was so near Christmas, his eyes lit up and he said, Todos para mia? Todos para mia? I just said, yes, todos para ti. No. Next morning we arrived in Bogota. We eventually got hold of the, well, the Irish consulate and we just went in and asked for an emergency passport, which was just a piece of paper, basically, with your photograph on, because we'd been robbed and whatever in um, in Colombia itself. And I got a piece of paper then from the police to say that I'd been robbed uh, on the coach coming from um, San Antonio to Bogota. And then a friend of mine, he actually booked the tickets for me on his visa card from Dublin. Paul is now living at home in Ireland with his parents. <laughs> nice cup of tea. This is one, one thing you do miss, is being able to come downstairs and make a cup make of a tea cup or tea. a cup of coffee when you want, you know? Because it just didn't happen in uh, Los Texas, you know? 